Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, would you take it and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians? And when you find the book of 1 Corinthians, if you would be so gracious as to find chapter 4, verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. This morning, I'm going to preach from verses 14 down through verse 21 in the last sermon of a sermon series we've called Follow the Leader. For those of you who are guests of ours, we walk through books of the Bible verse by verse because we don't think anybody, including the guy standing up here on the stage, is qualified to tell you how to live your life. Still very much trying to figure out how to live my life. But we believe God's Word is perfect. We believe it's inerrant and it's inspired. So we believe when the church gathers, the best way to hear from the Lord is to hear from His Word. And the best way to hear from His Word is to walk through it systematically, verse by verse, interpreting it in its context, and then applying that meaning that is eternal, that's ancient, to our modern-day lives. And so we began walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, verse by verse, several weeks ago. This is the second series in a series of sermon series. I said the word series there a lot. The second series called Follow the Leader. We're going to take a break beginning next week and do a standalone series called Confessions. Now, don't worry. There's not going to be a microphone where you have to come down and tell us how you're living. Though that might not be a bad idea, the reality is there are some confessions that we make in the church when we confess our faith in baptism, when we confess our faith through the Lord's Supper, when we confess our faith through celebrating baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we're going to spend, beginning next week, three incredible weeks camping on these confessions, and they're going to culminate with a service I'm very excited about at the conclusion of this month. So stay tuned. And even if your summer plans have you traveling, I would encourage you to still gather for worship with your family through the use of technology and pay attention to our direction as a church as we walk through God's Word and what He has to say about the great confessions of our faith. But as we turn our hearts back toward following the leader, I was reminded of how important it is to make sure people understand they have choices in leadership. I have a baby girl, she's four. I taught her to swim this week. It took all of 20 minutes. She's brave and she's mean. She's stubborn and she's hard-headed. Now, some of you have those children that you pay someone at the Y or someone to give lessons, and, and God bless you for doing that. That's not how I was taught to swim, and that's not how I taught her to swim. She says, I want to learn to swim. I want to take my floaties off. I said, well, you got a choice. I said, you can swim around with your floaties on like a baby. Are you a baby? I'm not a baby. Or you can learn to swim. Do you want to learn to swim? Yes, I do. Threw her in. Now, it was fairly shallow water, and if she stands on her tippy toes, she can breathe. So I wasn't too concerned about her health, not near as concerned as her mother was. I threw her in. I said, now, baby, I'm going to show you how to swim on top of the water and under the water. Most kids swim better under the water when they begin, and then you sort of learn how to swim on top of the water. But, but this is what you do. And I held her little tummy up, held her horizontal, and I said, you kick your feet and you move your arms and you keep your mouth closed and you don't suck water in and you go from point A to point B. It can't be that hard. And so there you are. And she's kicking and she's not going. I said, now I want to teach you how to swim under the water. You do the same thing. You just go under and you do it and you can open your eyes. It might burn a little bit, but keep your mouth closed and don't breathe through your nose. 
It took her a few good gulps of water, and that isn't bad, you know, to blow your sinuses out. It's a saltwater pool. And so within about 20 minutes, she had it, and she's swimming. Oftentimes in leadership, when we're trying to do something we've never done before, it really does come down to a choice. One of the things I've learned in working with adults, even more so than children, adults do what they want to do. We can talk a lot about what we think we say we want to do, but we really prove with our actions where our devotion is. We do what we want to do. This entire sermon series has been about how you follow spiritual leadership and how you give spiritual leadership. So I think it's appropriate that Paul concludes chapter 4 with really a discussion about choices. In fact, if I would give this sermon a title, I would call it Choose Wisely. Choose Wisely. Three choices are made in this passage. One, Paul makes, and two, he places before the Corinthian believers. Let me show you what I mean, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, and I'll read through down to the conclusion of the chapter. Paul writes these words to the church in Corinth. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul concludes with a pretty harsh yet needed word about a choice. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? In other words, what you want? It's your choice here. Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Church at Corinth, church at the mill, you ultimately choose. I told you there were three choices. Two of them we'll end our message with, but we got to begin with a choice Paul makes. Here's choice number one. Paul's choice is simple. Do I motivate you or do I humiliate you? One is very positive and needed in our life. The other one is not. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't times where we can learn lessons from humiliation. Shame is not something we should avoid all the time. There are times when we need to feel deep felt shame over something we have done. We have a culture that wants to run from shame, yet we know the scripture clearly teaches there are times when we need to stand before the Lord and be ashamed about a decision we make. Now, we don't stand there permanently and we're not to live in our past, but sometimes shame is useful. However, when you're leading people, you'll find motivating them is far more effective than humiliating them. This is why Paul says these words in verse 14. He says, I did not write these things to make you 
ashamed. Now, what are the, these things he's talking about there? Well, you could argue the beginning of the book, but if we just camp out in chapter 4, Paul is saying, I called some of you out because you are infatuating with uh, loyalty to certain spiritual leaders and you've divided yourself up into factions and camps. For those of you that have been going on this journey with me, you know that the Corinthian church really struggled with arrogance around certain leaders. They would say, my preacher's better than your preacher. My leader's better than your leader. There was also this infatuation with worldly wisdom. Corinth was the pantheon of all the worldviews in the ancient world. And Corinth was a place where religion and spirituality were common speech. And what was worshipped in that day was the wisdom of the world. If you could sound wise, if you could wax eloquently, if you knew the finer points of great rhetoric in your argument, if you understood how to reason with the best in human rationalization, then they just salivated over your giftedness. And Paul shows how the gospel splits worldly wisdom to the core and says that the wisdom for life is not found in the human heart. It's found in the creator of the human heart. The wisdom for life is not found in creation. It's found in the creator. The wisdom for life is not found in overindulging in the blessings of God, but rather falling more in love with the blesser who is God. And so the gospel takes worldly wisdom to task, and that's what Paul does. But then Paul begins in verse 14 with this very tender note. Now, why? Well, if you were with me last week, you'll know verse 13's pretty firm. If you have your eyes on the text, whether you have a device or a printed copy, as I strongly encourage you to bring the church with you, you'll look in verse 13. Paul said, when slandered we entreat, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, like the refuse of all things. So Paul's painting a pretty graphic picture of the condition of his life, and he's saying, you all are running around creating a false sense of security because you've built your life on human rhetoric and human wisdom. But I, as an apostle, Paul would say, have dealt with deep persecution. I've known what it's like to be refused by men. I've known what it's like to be ridiculed by women. I've known what it's like to be disowned by those who once called me their own. And so it's a pretty graphic, uh, no-holds-barred description of how difficult it can be to follow the Lord, and Paul is not mincing words. And then no sooner has he taken them to task that he turns and he offers this beautiful, tender note he says in verse 14 these words, I did not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. One commentator noted that very seldom do we find Paul calling people his disciples. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find that in the New Testament. But you find him often calling them his children. This is not language only in 1 Corinthians here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 6, Paul reminded them why he could call them their spiritual father. In other words, why he could say, I'm your spiritual father. He said earlier in the book, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, the point of that verse is that God does the work spiritually. But you may note 
Paul was the one who planted. The act of planting is to put a seed where a seed did not exist. You don't show up to a field that has got no attention and expect a harvest. Now, the very first thing you have to do is to prepare the soil and plant the seed. You need no agricultural wisdom to understand that a plant that you desire will not come from dirt that has not been planted. Paul said, I got the gospel to you. Paul would say to the Corinthian believers the same thing he would say to Timothy and Titus. I wasn't there the day you were born, but I was there the day you were born again. I I wasn't there when your mother gave birth to you, but I was there and I preached the gospel when Jesus gave you a new birth. I, I wasn't there when you were born, but I was there when you were born again. And, and Paul could say, not only was I there, I was the one who brought the gospel. Paul's not in any way suggesting that he saved them, that he did the work. In fact, look at the verse. God gave them or God gave the growth. But Paul's saying, The gospel had not got to you till I got to you with the gospel. So in the family terminology, he would say, I'm your spiritual father. I'm not your savior, but I brought you into the kingdom by bringing the gospel to you. And then the Lord did what only the Lord does. He saved you. And Paul begins to reference this beautiful language. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, for though you have countless gods in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus, notice, through the gospel. Not through my wisdom, not through my ministry, not through anything I did. Because I delivered the gospel to you, I got the privilege of being your father. He uses this term quite often in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 13, he says, in return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. We also see it in chapter 12, verse 14. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Paul's saying, no child is expected to care for his parents when he is a child. But parents are expected to care for their children. So Paul's argument is, I don't want anything from you. I want to minister to you. Now, if we had time, I would explain to you more in detail why he would write that in the book of 2 Corinthians. Those who don't like Paul's message attacked his own integrity. They accused Paul of being in the ministry of prophet. Paul says, that's not true. I I didn't want anything from you. I didn't come to you as a child in need. I came to you as a spiritual father who wanted to give. And we see this again in the passage in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. Paul says to the churches in Galatia, My little children, from whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. So Paul takes the metaphor of a mother who goes through the pain of bringing a child into the world, and he uses that metaphor of an apostle saying, I'm in pain, I'm laboring till I see the fullness of Christ in your life. Why am I camping on this? I'll tell you what. When you view people as a part of your family, You do things for them you wouldn't do for others. How how many of you enjoyed Mother's Day a few weeks ago? I mean, we love some mama, don't we? 
Sunday night, I was hosting an event at my home for our leaders. My mother fell. She broke her leg and dislocated her ankle. It was a bad night for her. I hated it for her. My brother, who was there helping me, because he lives in the upstate now, took her to the emergency room, and they diagnosed her with a broke leg and a dislocated ankle. Wait on the picture. And uh, take the picture off. Thank you. They broke, they located, they, they, a broke leg and a dislocated ankle. And they said, you're going to have to have surgery, but we cannot do the surgery till the swelling goes down. We cannot do the surgery till the swelling goes down. She's five hours from her home, which is in Alabama. We get her to my home that night. That's a whole nother story. I won't tell you it's time for a good laugh. Today's not the day. I'm still dealing with it. It'll be funny one day. I have this precious mother. She cannot walk. How do I get her to Alabama? I have a big old van. We took all the seats out of it. I also know people in the funeral home business. I called a friend of mine who owns a funeral home. I said, I need a body transport gurney. He said, come on down. We'll sterilize one. I'm just glad it was empty when I got there. I have another friend, an elder in this church, who owns a medical supply company. He supplied me with a rolling amulet-style post-surgery bed. So I took the funeral home gurney, and I picked my mama up, and I took her out to my van. And in the van, I took all the seats out, and I ratchet-strapped the surgery recovery bed. And we put her on it, and we created an ambulance. And me and my brother, cue picture, Drove her to Alabama this week. That's what we did. That's me and my brother smiling and her big old swollen foot stuck up in the air. It was me and my brother. My brother said, this is like Sanford and Son body transformed. <laughs> my mother had another name for it. She called it two men and a witch. And that's the Sunday morning version of it. <laughs> you, you, you do what you got to do for family. Can I tell you something? When it comes to spiritual leadership, really leading people spiritually, you won't lead them if you don't love them. You live in a day and age where the device in your purse or your pocket gives you access to a multitude of spiritual leaders. There are all kinds of men and women claiming to teach the Bible, and many of them are faithful. In addition to the proclamation of the Bible, there are seminars, blogs, vlogs, podcasts, all kinds of resources and daily reading plans. None of these are bad. We produce a great deal of content here at Church at the Mill, and we enjoy the fruit of other people's work. I have a library that's digital that's pretty big, and I have a pretty large library of printed books up until about 10 years ago when I stopped buying books in print, and now I buy them on software that I use to study. The point is, is that we rejoice that God has raised up men and women whom we will never meet to do the ministry of helping us understand the Bible. But there is a difference between leaning on tools and resources and social media posts 
and being in someone's life spiritually. This is one of the important reasons for the local church. We we not only need resources, we need spiritual family. We need spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers. We need people to invest in our lives, and then we need to invest in others. And Paul differentiates. Paul says, there are a lot of people who are going to come along in your life who are gods for you, but I'm your spiritual father. In other words, I'm the person that brought the gospel to you. Paul's not doing this to build himself up. Paul's not doing this that he might be uh, somehow adored or elevated. Paul is saying, I just want you to take into account the significant investment I've made into your life when I choose to admonish you. And what is the difference between admonish and shame? Well, there's a lot of ways we could talk about it, but really it goes back to how you define a person. Do you define someone by their past or do you discern the truth about their future? When you study the word admonish in the New Testament, it's not a word without an edge to it. In other words, it can be a hard word, it can be a firm word, but it's not a word rooted in going back and saying, this is who you are and this is what you did and I'm so ashamed of you. That's not an admonishment. An admonishment is, if you don't change, this is what's going to happen. If you don't turn to the Lord, this is where your life's going to go. If you don't repent of this behavior or this thinking or this false belief, then you are going to go down this path. You don't admonish someone you don't care about. If you don't care about them, by default, you don't care if they fail. You admonish those whom you love. You don't define them by their past. You don't even define them by their present. But you do say, I don't want the trajectory of your life to continue in this path. And listen, none of us are above needing admonishment. But if I'm going to get it, I want to get it and receive it from people who love me. And I have to love others if I'm ever asked to be put in a position to admonish them. So Paul made a great choice there. Does he humiliate? Or does he motivate? One word of application. You're not an apostle, nor am I. I don't have the authority the apostle Paul did. But as a pastor, to church members, to guests of our church, to those who have regularly attended, who will be joining at some point in the near future, we hope. What do we do with this? Well, the first thing we do is to make sure we always put ourselves under spiritual leadership that we can see, touch, feel, talk to, embrace, that we can experience love from. But secondly, we don't just read this one way. We also ask ourselves, am I loving the people God has placed me over to spiritually lead them? Some of you have a son or a daughter you need to admonish. They're going in a direction that does not honor the Lord. You love them, and you're not defining them by the decisions they're making. Some of the mistakes they're making right now, you made. But that does not mean you get to usurp. You get to skirt your responsibility from lovingly admonishing them. Uh, Others of you may be in a situation where someone who you know loves you has admonished you lately, and you pushed back. You drew back. As human beings, our natural reaction when someone challenges behavior in our lives is to get defensive. And the most ugly defensive strategy is to go on the offensive. Not only am I not going to receive that word, I'm going to be critical of you for bringing that word into my life. This is not the posture of Christians. 
It doesn't mean we run around constantly examining one another's life with a spirit of judgmentalism, but it does mean that when someone has enough courage to come to you in humility and grace and offer an admonishment to you, receive it in love. And make sure you're willing to love people enough to encourage them. That's often easy to do. But to love them enough to admonish them. I cannot imagine where I would be today had I not received love and encouragement from many Christian leaders in my life, Sunday school teachers, mentors, camp counselors, pastors. But I also cannot imagine where I'd be today had I also not had strategic moments where some of those same men and women admonished me in the faith, in love, and called something out in my life that was not honoring of the Lord. And looking back on it now, never was pleasant, but it's so appreciated because they didn't have to do it. They could have walked away. They could have folded their arms and said, well, Lord, he's in your hands. But rather, they chose to say, God, I cannot move in his life. I cannot change his heart. I am not your spirit. But to the degree that it depends on, to the, to the degree that it depends on me, I will speak truth to this brother or this sister in the Lord. Now, Paul's choice sets up two choices that the Corinthians are asked to make. I'll share those with you very briefly. The first choice of the Corinthians, the second choice in the outline, is a choice to imitate or elevate. Remember their problem. Their problem is, it's not that they're ignoring spiritual leadership, it's that they're elevating the wrong people and they're elevating them beyond what Christ would have them do. They're saying, this man teaching and his wisdom and his belief system is the best. And if you're not under him, then you are not going to grow spiritually. And so factions and camps and dissensions had formed in the church. And these divisions were discouraging the body. So look what Paul does beginning in verse 16. I urge you then, what's the then therefore? Because he's saying, as your spiritual father, because of the significant connection between you and me, I urge you to be imitators of me. Now, we draw a little bit from that. I mean, we live in a culture where we say, don't do as I say, do as I do. Or rather, do as I say, don't do as I do. We don't like the thought that someone would draw attention to our lives and say, imitate me. But quite frankly, Paul never backed away from that. Paul understood that he was not asking people to worship him, but he was saying, you're going to follow Jesus a certain way, so you ought to follow him the way I follow him because I've been following him longer than you've been following him. I'm not better than you. I'm not more spiritual than you. I may be more mature than you. I may have had more grace given to me in certain areas of my life, but I'm here saying he's worth following, and I'm following him, so get in line and imitate me. He would say a little bit later in the same book in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me, but watch, as I am of Christ. So there's a scope there. Paul's saying, imitate me to the degree to which I imitate Christ. That's what I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to accept my personality as the only personality. I'm not asking you to always handle things the way I would handle things. I'm saying, as I follow Jesus, you Follow me. That's exactly what the passage says in verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. In Philippians chapter 3, I like how Paul says it. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So notice how Paul is saying, I'm not saying I'm the only one to imitate. 
I'm saying, imitate me, join me in imitating Christ, and the people who are imitating Christ by imitating me, keep your eyes on them too. So Paul doesn't picture a church built around one spiritual leader that everybody says, his word goes, and we all do exactly what he says. Those are typically called cults. Paul's experiencing and talking about a body of believers who are in love with the Lord Jesus. Christ raises up men and women who are spiritually gifted to lead in various ways, and he says to the body, follow these men and follow these women as they follow Jesus so that more of you are following the Lord faithfully. Now, there's something here I don't want you to miss. That means presence matters. It means in order to follow Jesus, I need to be with people, not online with people. I need to be with people who are following Jesus. So grateful for the gift of technology. For many churches like ours, it allowed us to stay connected during a pandemic. So thankful that as people travel or they're out of town or they're home with a sick child or they're one of our precious shut-ins or they're one of our young men serving abroad in armed services or on the mission field, so glad that hundreds of people join weekly and listen to the word be preached. But the pattern of a believer's life to the degree that their health would allow them, is to be present with other believers. In other words, put yourself in relationship with other people so not only can you worship and serve together, I can find some folks being more faithful than me, and I can watch them. I can see them navigate a difficulty in their marriage. I can watch them deal with a wayward child. I can watch them handle sin that may come up in their life. And as I watch, I don't watch judgmentally, but I watch them. Maybe I watch somebody be admonished and receive it humbly and repent joyfully and serve faithfully. When I bump into a Christian who lets their life cross paths with my life and I watch them navigate the trash of this world, and I watch them deal with the difficulties, and they put Christ first, and they put one foot in front of the other, and they remain prayerful, and they're in his word, and I see growth in their life. Friend, that makes me excited. It makes me want to follow Christ more because I've seen his manifest glory in their life. This is why we ought to go back to years ago where we weren't afraid to testify about the goodness of God in our lives. You ever go to a testimony service as a child where people just stood up and testified about his greatness and his glory and his goodness? They weren't highly educated people that I grew up around. They weren't people that the world noticed. None of them received some global award. The world didn't stop in its tracks when we laid their body to rest, but they were faithful, common folk who served Jesus. And their presence in my life shaped and formed my understanding that the Lord is good because the Lord is real. And he's real because of his faithfulness shown in their life. Presence matters. So Paul, who couldn't get to them, says these words in verse 16. He says in verse 16, I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. In other words, I couldn't get to you. You couldn't watch me online. So I sent Timothy this morning. Right now, our Woodruff campus pastor, Adam Siski, is preaching this same text. He and I talked about it for about three hours this week. We worked through it together. 
We have the money. We have the resources. We could just simulcast down there. I don't want to do that. I want there to be a pastor there somebody can pray with after he preaches. The ministry of presence matters. We didn't send a signal to Woodruff. We sent a man and 200 members with him. And now they're going strong and doing well. And we're praying right now about other locations. We're further along in some ways than I can even announce at this point. I'm praying about future pastors and leaders who would be sent out. The ministry of presence matters. And not only does the ministry of presence matters, it's important as a church sends out young men and young women to serve faithfully in areas within the church, it's important for them to understand what ministry is about. Ministry is not the manufacturing of a message. It's the multiplying of the same old message. Ministry is not who can be coolest, whose posts are sexiest, whose catchphrases are flashy. Ministry is about telling the good old story about a Savior and an old rugged cross and the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of the saints and the washing of the blood and the returning of a king and a new heaven and a new earth and a real heaven and a real hell. That's what ministry is. Ministry is not necessarily always revelatory. Of course, some of you are learning parts of the Bible for the very first time, but I am under no pressure to create content. It's right here. It's been given to us, and it's complete. In fact, at the end of it, it says, if you add to it or you take away from it, the curses of the blessings of this book will be added to you. So God not only said, here it is, God said, here it is, and I finished it. It's done. Final draft. So ministry is not about manufacturing more truth and more wisdom. This is what preoccupied the Corinthians. Ministry is about reminding people of the truth and the wisdom who is found, that is found, in the Savior, it might be why, the vision of our church, we keep repeating it. We want you to gather, grow, give, and go actively. You gather through worship. You gather in fellowship. You grow through your time with Jesus. You grow through discipleship. You give of your tithes and your offerings. You give of your service. You serve the Lord. And then you go share as a witness tomorrow at work and at play. And you go get on an airplane. Get a passport updated. Get on a train. Get, on a, get in a car. Go somewhere and be a part of God's mission to the nations. And we just keep saying that over and over and over again. Do you need to rebrand? Nope. Why? Because he hadn't rebrand. I don't have a re-Bible to rebrand with. This is it. And so we keep reminding people of the truth. And by the way, that's why we're here, right? Didn't you come? Many of you came last week. Isn't that good? Did we talk about Jesus last week? I mean, if we, if we meet a couple times a year, isn't that good? Not for me. I forget. I get discouraged. I get doubtful. I get dirty. My bucket leaks. I wake up every day. And before me is the choice to choose to follow the Lord Jesus, who's my Savior, or to rebel against him. Now, the more you walk in Christ, the more subtle your rebellion can look. But you can become disconnected in just a matter of days if you find yourself drifting from what is true. Which leads to the final choice. The choice the Corinthians face. Choice number three. Cooperate or escalate. You ever looked at a toddler and said, we can do this the hard way or the easy way? You choose. My wife is a master at crafting the hearts of our children. She's four times the parent I am. 
I'm fun and firm and she's everything in between. Is she will help them work their way out of a bad situation by giving them choices. They think that the freedom of their will is being honored. She's just manipulating them right into bed. <laughs> okay, honey, what do you want to do? You, you want to bathe or do you want to brush your teeth? You pick. You're going to do both. I'm in the back going, that's a dumb kid. They don't see. <laughs> she she going to bathe them and brush her teeth and put them to bed. Sometimes I'm so tired, I'm like, honey, they get another set of teeth. Why we got to brush these? Can we just put them in the bed? I mean, these are all going to fall out anyway. I feel like we taking care of some stuff we're going to lose here. She rolls her eyes. We often help children see that the way in which they react to instruction does determine how pleasant the evening's going to go. Spiritually, what has Paul said he is? He is their spiritual father. I don't want to take away by using humor with the firmness of this word. Perhaps I'll soften your heart so you'll receive it. Listen to what he says. I'll close. He says, some, verse 18, are arrogant as though I was not coming to you. Do you ever have that discussion? When I get home, this is Paul saying, when daddy gets home, mama's will pull that out when your father gets home, right? I have showed up from work and the children are hiding. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> then once I get the commentary from my co-laborer in the ministry of parenting, I know why they're hiding. Paul says, some of you act like I'm not coming. I'm coming back to Corinth and when I come let me tell you what I want to do, and let me tell you what I will do. This is what he says in verse 19. But I will come to you soon, and if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Paul's saying, when I judge what people are doing, I don't look at all the words. How is God moving in their ministry? He uses that word power to launch into just a brief sentence describing the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, I'm paraphrasing, where Paul says, And when I came to you, I did not come with fancy words, with eloquent speech, but in demonstration of power of the resurrection. And why? Because he says in verse 5, So that your faith will be built on Christ and not on anything that humans have done. So Paul gauged spiritual leadership by spiritual power. This is a spiritual thing that we are doing. We're not in the business of just creating church attenders who manipulate and modify their own behavior and by your own moral willpower, you just become nicer neighbors. That happens sometimes. People reduce uh, Christianity to behavioral modification, but that's not the gospel. The gospel says that Christ changes you on the inside so that your want and your will become aligned with him. Now that then manifests in morality, in changed behavior, in a different worldview, but the morality, the changed behavior is not what we place our faith in. We place our faith in a savior who redeemed us from all of our bad behavior, sin, and gives us a desire to honor him that is deeper than our own willpower. And this is why Paul says, when I come, I'm going to be real quick to find out who's talking and who's walking. 
Who has the people who's puffed up arrogantly, who's into pomp and circumstance, and who's got the power? Who cracks open the book and preaches the word? Who has a group of people who love Jesus more after he preaches than they did before he preached? Who's got a church or a small group where people are praying and weeping together and longing for righteousness and being long-suffering with one another when they're hurting? Whose lives are being changed? Paul says, that's what I'm looking for. And then he closes by these words. He says, shall I come? What do you wish? Verse 21, shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Paul says, I want to come with gentleness, but I will come with the rod. Now, he's using that metaphorically. He's talking about spiritual discipline. He's saying, do you want me to have to come and remove you from church leadership? Do you want me to take you out of the church? Do you want me to practice church discipline? Or would you rather me throw my arms open and say, hey, I know where you've been. I know what you did. I know you were on the wrong side of that. But I've heard that you've cooperated, that you've submitted, that you've repented. So cooperation is really about repentance. But if you rebel, it's going to escalate. Can I just tell you that's true in your own walk with the Lord? If you would remove church leadership for just a moment, if you rebel against God, it never leads to more peace. It never leads to happiness. It never leads to true joy and pleasure. But when you submit to the Lord's will, you'll find he'll be the first to never define you by your past, but to bless you in your present and to give you the strength for your future. And that's how spiritual leadership should be. Spiritual leaders should never define you by your past. They should never hold over your head what you did do, what you did say, how you did behave. When they see repentance and brokenness that is measured out through faithfulness, not that you say you're sorry, but that your life looks different, that you're more consistent, that you're more faithful, they should celebrate where you are and where you're going. And I could just tell you, in ministry, it's exhausting to try to hold people to the impossible standard of somehow overcoming their past. It's exhilarating to let God be God and let his grace flow into their life and let them be defined by the future that is theirs in Christ. Everybody's talking about Maverick and Top Gun. It's got me thinking about old movies. One of my favorite old movies is Indiana Jones series. The Last Crusade came out in 1989, and it was a story around the Nazis pursuing the Holy Grail. It's a fictitious tale that the cup of Christ still existed, and that if you found the cup that Jesus drank from at the Lord's Supper, you'd live forever. Well, in the movie, it existed, and finally, Indiana finds it in the catacombs of an ancient city. And there's one of the knights who's hundreds of years old who's been kept alive by drinking the Holy Grail water. He knows that Indiana's about to choose which grail it is. About that same time, the foes, the Nazis show up. And so the knight says, choose. Indiana says, okay, you go first. And the knight says to Indiana, choose wisely. For if chosen correctly, the grail will give you life. But if incorrectly... It will bring death. Well, the enemy grabs this beautiful uh, gold 
diamond-crusted cup and drinks and immediately dies a grisly death. He ages far beyond what you should age in one moment. And Indiana chews correctly a humble cup. And he drinks it, doesn't die, and uses it to save the life of his father. I couldn't help but think about that line. Choose wisely. Because if you choose wisely, it brings life into your life. If you choose poorly, it brings death. When we think about spiritual leadership, this is how I would leave you this morning. Choose wisely. Choose wisely who you follow. Choose wisely whose teaching, whose content, the resources that you pour into your life. But also, choose wisely how you lead spiritually. If you're a mother, you're a spiritual leader. If you're a father, you're a spiritual leader. If you're a husband, you're a spiritual leader. If you're one of the only Christians at your workplace, friend, you are not only a spiritual leader, you're a missionary tomorrow at work. If you're a neighbor who loves Jesus and there are people in your neighborhood who do not know him, guess what? You're a spiritual leader. It matters that you choose wisely. You're going to humiliate or you're going to motivate. When it comes to your walk, are you going to say, I want you to imitate Christ in me? Or let's just elevate some celebrity for you to go read or listen to. And finally, are you going to encourage people to cooperate with God's will? Or to escalate his judgment by rebelling against him? When it comes to spiritual leadership, choose wisely. Let's pray. Church family, over the next few weeks, as we focus in on confessions, we're going to open this altar up in some significant ways. But this morning, I, I wanted to conclude this series humbly as your spiritual leader and pray over you. Father, we've walked through this series of sermons on spiritual leadership. If I, as one of the pastors here at Church of the Mill, have said anything that is not according to your will or your word, Lord, would you remove it from our minds before we leave the room? But if your word has been explained and applied faithfully according to the teachings of your scripture, and if the gospel has been the center of our message, then would you help us Follow spiritual leaders faithfully, but equally give spiritual leadership faithfully in our lives. Lord, we know we're only as good of a leader as we are a follower of you. We know that any woman or man in this room who wants to be much with people must be much with the Savior. We know that who we are privately and personally determines the power we have publicly and relationally. I covet the thought of every man and woman in this room bowing their head tomorrow morning during their morning devotion saying, God, make me a spiritual leader today. And Lord, help me to discern the spiritual leaders that I follow and to follow them faithfully 
that we may all imitate you. Now, Lord, as we head off to small group, as we head off to serve, as we go off to live our week for you, I pray you would be honored through the preaching of your word by the obedience of the saints. And before I say amen with your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here today and you'd like to pray with someone, there's something on your heart, it would be our greatest joy to tell you that we have a prayer room in the concourse with men and women who are there ready to confidentially, to seriously and to prayerfully sit with you for a few moments and talk about your issue, where you are with Christ, and how we can help you. So don't leave today if that personal attention, that family need can be met by our family here at Church at the Mill. Father, now to you be all the glory and the honor in the church and in the world. And God's people said, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.